last line is left off of the chant. But I love it, and I'm so glad it's included here. (laughs) A short story that I like to share comes from a book by Tenzin Palmo, a Tibetan, a Western Tibetan nun. Many years ago, His Holiness the Dalai Lama came to the remote Lahul Valley in India where I was living. He was there for about one week giving Dharma talks and empowerments. After one of his talks, which had lasted for several hours, you guys get off easy here, which had lasted for several hours, I turned to one of the Lahuli women and asked, do you know what he was talking about? She said, I didn't catch much, but I understood that if we have a good heart, that's excellent. The Cheyenne have a saying, our first teacher is our own heart. And Ajahn Chah, the Thai forest master, one of my favorites, says, Dhamma is in your heart, not in the forest. Just listen to your heart. You don't have to go and look anywhere else. Wisdom is in you, just like the sweet ripe mango is already in the young green one. Just listen to your heart. That's what we're doing here for this month. We're listening to our hearts and we're letting our hearts be our teacher, teaching us about the deepest kind of love or metta, the widest um, expression of its own nature. From the Metta Sutra, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, free from drowsiness. But it doesn't always feel this way, right? But it is our natural mind, this gentle, luminous, and kind heart. We're all capable of tuning into this boundless love. I was reading... um, I was reading this afternoon about um, St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas said that we have um, universe-shaped hearts, that we're universe-capable. Isn't that a great phrase? We're universe-capable. And through exploring our own heart and its own boundless nature, we discover that for ourselves. I was also reading this afternoon. I think I read it. Where did I read that? Oh, yes, in my town newspaper. (laughs) I was thinking about the the moon, and I was going to tell you guys, well, the moon, one thing that's so beautiful about the moon is that it, it, it seems like it's 
pretty constant considering we live in this world, right, where everything's so um, up in the air these days. Everything, right? Our very planet, but yet the moon just goes patiently through all of its cycles. But what I read today was that the moon is actually moving away from us at the rate of one and a half inches a year. It's going to take a while for it to get noticeable. (laughs) But I guess it's true, everything changes. In our journey together, I'd like to reclaim the word love. Kathleen Dean Moore, I think I mentioned her the other day, in her book, Earth's Wild Music, says, Hallmark has kidnapped the word love and beaten it senseless. (laughs) So um, I'd like to revive it in all of its fullness. In this book, she also tells the story of a park ranger who was afraid that people would be turned off if she used the word love. I guess she was there as a naturalist or something. And so he asked her not to use the word. And she asked him what word she should use instead of the word love. After thinking for a long time, he answered, maybe instead we should say, listen to. Listen to. Okay, let's listen. Let's listen to our own hearts, to each other, to the earth, the wild earth, and to life itself. Let's listen deeply and let our own heart teach us about its freest expression. Perhaps this is the deepest form of metta for ourselves, to listen to our hearts. We're pretty good at bossing around our hearts. That's what we tend to do. (laughs) Tell them what they're allowed to feel and how they should behave. And we can even do that in our metta practice, right? Like, what's wrong with you? You're not performing. (laughs) You're not uh, living up to my ideal But the heart doesn't like to be bossed around. But it loves to be listened to. In natural resources management, an ecosystem restoration approach is called rewilding. And this approach lets nature heal by repairing damaged ecosystems, by allowing them to return to their natural state. So wild areas that have been altered and developed and tamed are allowed to return to their unmanaged state. Dams are deconstructed, walls are taken down, native species of plants are encouraged to grow, and even native animals are reintroduced. And the, these, these uh, ecosystems are allowed to return to balance through this approach. The area is encouraged to return to the beauty, biodiversity, and majesty 
majesty of its original state. The practice of the Brahma Viharas rewilds our hearts. Due to wounding and just the wear and tear of life, our hearts have been unhelpfully developed. Walls have been constructed, the soil has been depleted, and perhaps the beauty and majesty has been lost. With Brahma Brihara practice, we deconstruct the dams and take down the walls, feed and nourish the soil, encourage the growth of natural love and compassion, and allow the vibrancy and beauty of our hearts to shine forth. We return them to their natural state before they became obstructed. We decolonize our hearts. Cultivating metta and the other brahma-viharas brings to light what blocks our natural radiance of heart. We don't so much create these radiant qualities as uncover what obstructs them. We don't have to build metta up. We just have to work with what gets in the way, what blocks our heart. Because of the many ways that we've been hurt in life, we've learned to shield our hearts, primarily with aversion, grasping, and delusion. You'll recognize as the three roots of suffering. Metta is a solvent that dissolves this shielding. Metta can be experienced in many ways and we can explore its flavors. Sometimes it's just the quiet intention to wish well. Sometimes it's a warm feeling of friendliness. Sometimes it's a powerful stream of kind-hearted energy. Sometimes it's vast and boundless, the fabric of the universe. In the discourses, it's uh, often described as the absence of ill will, the heart that's not obstructed by ill will. And right there, we can see how we're pointing to what you could say is behind the shield, the shield of ill will. It's right there. There's a Burmese monk that we call the happy monk. We called, he he died a few years ago. I think he was in his late 90s. And um, every time I would go practice, I practiced in Upper Burma every other year for a number of years and sometimes taught and assisted on the retreat. But every year we would go visit the happy monk several times if we could, as often as we could get over to his monastery. He was such an incredible being that my friend Greg, Greg Scharf, said, I would fly all the way halfway around the world to sit in front of him for five minutes. It would be worth it. 
So I asked him, I thought this was a good question to get the answer to. I asked him, why are you so happy? And I expected some kind of wisdom answer. <laughs> but what he said is, because I have no ill will towards anyone. I have no ill will towards you. He, he was very expressive. I have no ill will towards the snakes. I have no ill will towards anyone. <laughs> the absence of ill will. Our radiant hearts. Metta is strengthened through our intention to be kind. Our intention to bless ourselves and others, if if that word works for you. And the trick is to let our heart navigate its own journey, to let our heart teach us. Too much intentionality, too much goal-oriented behavior, and I'm sure you've all tried it. We we all do. (laughs) Too much demand that our heart be friendly, that it do what we want it to do. And the heart won't cooperate. The heart cooperates best when we listen to it. So metta practice is an exploration of the heart. And the heart is a complicated creature. I sometimes say it's like a feral cat. (laughs) I can talk about that more some other day. (laughs) We let the heart tell us its story not through the conceptual realm, but through embodiment, feeling, and intuition. Establishing the intention to cultivate unconditional metta, unconditional love, we meet the heart's response. Both its metta-like nature and also its hesitations. You could say its enthusiasm and its hesitations. Eventually, through this listening, our heart comes to the conclusion, as stated by Martin Luther King Jr., I've decided to stick with love. Hatred is too great a burden to bear. So tonight's talk is primarily about metta and what are known as the hindrances, the five hindrances or Five obstacles that cloud this brilliance of metta. Sometimes we connect and other times we uh, experience these obstacles. I usually call them challenges rather than hindrances. That word sometimes uh, sets up an adversarial relationship and that's not what we're interested in. So these five challenges, uh, most of you I'm sure are familiar with them. Desire leading to attachment, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt. And they're challenges because they can be obstacles to the metta, to the development of metta if we don't know how to work with them, if we don't see them. So learning how to recognize when these Challenges are present, and learning how to respond to them is our practice. It's not like an interruption. They arise for all of us because we're human. 
They're part of the human heart also. Most of us have our favorites. Sometimes we have multiple hindrance attacks where we experience several or even all of them at once. Most of us have our go-tos. So we want to, first of all, when these hindrances arise, we want to just check our relationship to them. Are we um, antagonistic towards them, trying to destroy them, get rid of them, exile them? Or is there a friendly, meta-filled attitude, a kindness towards these energies, an ability to accept their presence and then work with them skillfully? So our first line of support when these hindrances arise or these challenges arise is mindfulness. The best support. Cultivating a relationship of not getting lost in these mind states, of being aware when they arise. So mindfulness is our protection. In some cases, uh, we apply an antidote, and I'll talk about that. The other day, Devin Hassa said to me, oh, Monday, it'll be a perfect time to talk about the hindrances, because I'm guessing you've you're experiencing them, <laughs> at least sometimes. Sometimes as we settle in deeper, they, they actually seem to become more apparent. Maybe they become more apparent. Maybe they are more active. <laughs> and for those of us who are used to mindfulness practice, we may notice at times that we get uh, whomped more by the hindrances in metta practice. It's, and it's because we're not tracking the hindrances like we do with Vipassana. We're tracking our moment-to-moment experience. So we may catch a hindrance earlier. But with concentration practices and the metta practice as a concentration practice, sometimes by the time you notice a hindrance, it's full-blown. Because the concentration has been suppressing it. And then... If it gets through, it can be um, strong. So if you notice that, people tend to, if they notice that, they're like, oh boy, I'm really messing up. No, it's just the nature of hindrances and concentration practice. So the first uh, challenge is uh, attached love or self-centered love, self-centered metta. A big part of our journey with metta practice is understanding what metta is and what it isn't. What can masquerade as metta. So what we call love often includes a lot of attachment. Now, now we have to be careful. There's a, there's a, this word attachment in Western psychology can be seen as a positive thing. It's a commitment and a bonding with others, right? So we're not talking about that. We're talking about um, 
the attachment that is a contraction actually around our own wishes and wants when we're doing metta practice. So this um, attached or self-centered metta is called the near neighbor of metta, or sometimes we call it the near miss. It's close, but uh, not exact. And as many of you know, each Brahma Vihara has a, a near neighbor, traditionally a near enemy and a far enemy, but a little bit too adversarial for most of us, a near neighbor or a far, and a far neighbor. And the first two hindrances, interestingly, correspond to the near and far neighbor of metta. And the near neighbor is the one that can be mistaken for the Brahma Vihara because it's similar in some ways. The far neighbor is not so confusing. It's a quality opposite to the Brahma Vihara, so we, we can distinguish that pretty easily. But a fascinating part of metta practice is, is this first challenge of, of self-centered metta, or this near neighbor, and beginning to experience within our own heart the difference between metta that is unconditional, or sometimes I say metta like this, open hand, offering open hand, or metta that has contraction in it due to our own agendas infiltrating the metta, our own needs, wants, agendas, attachments. So for example, we can say, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, just like this, just no conditions, right? Or it's may you be happy, (laughs) I want you to be happy. I'm not going to be happy if you're not happy. Uh, this boundless or this unconditional metta has now cor- contracted. That's attached love. So in this case, metta or love means that we want life to be in a certain way. We want the other person to be a certain way. So there can be expectation, even bargaining, exchange. I'll love you if you do the dishes tonight. (laughs) Um, We understand metta more deeply by seeing this, seeing what it is not, acknowledging these forms of contracted metta that surfaces. One student I um, taught many years ago, she uh, came for a short retreat, a weekend retreat, I think it was, and she had a, a, a pretty young baby. Her husband was taking care of the baby for the weekend so she could come, and she was doing metta practice, and she was like, her baby was her, her easy being. She was like, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. May you sleep through the night without a bottle. (laughs) May you not pee-pee in mom and dad's bed. (laughs) And she had to laugh, right, as her her agendas started to infiltrate this unconditional love. (laughs) 
So attached love can masquerade as metta because both of them see the good in ourselves and others. They appreciate the, the, the meditation being we're working with. Um, in that way, they're similar. But true metta isn't contracted around desire and expectation. It wishes well unconditionally. A number of years ago, my teacher Michelle was talking about this, and while it was outdated then, it's getting even more outdated now, but she talked about, for those of us who are older, she talked about a radio dial and how um, in the old days when you were trying to find a station, uh, sometimes you would be close to the station and it would be kind of staticky, and then you, when you hit the station exactly, it was clear, right? She said, that's like metta and, um, and attached love. Attached love, it's staticky. It's not quite there. It's just a little bit of a miss. And we're tuning our hearts to see if we can find that place where the metta is pure and shiny, luminous. So to love deeply, this first challenge points to uh, the equanimity part of metta. This fourth Brahma Vihara that I believe um, Devon mentioned needs to be part of all of the first three. This uh, heart that can allow all of life can, can include all of life, the joy, the sorrow, the fact that people will do whatever they'll do and we can't control them. They have their own destiny, their own journey. We wish them happiness, but they're not always going to be happy. It's kind of a paradox, right, of the phrases, may you be happy, and you know that maybe they'll be happy for a while, but they're not always going to be happy because they're humans, Right. So that's the equanimity part that can include all that and still wish well unconditionally with the open, open palm, open hand. Loving deeply is challenging. Rilke, the German poet, said, it is a great undertaking just to learn to love one person. Our hearts need time to relax and open because an open heart faces life as it is. Not an easy task in this wild and uncertain world that we live in. Korean master Sang Sang said, Great love, great sadness. True love isn't cheap. (laughs) It has a price. And the price is a willingness to feel this world and its wholeness, entirety. So with mindfulness, we notice when our hearts are um, contracted, when there's that sense, any sense of tension or 
wanting something. And when we see that, we notice it. See if we can put it aside and come back to the phrases with more relaxation, less demand. We can look at the energy behind the phrases. Is the energy open or closed? A gentle wish or a slight demand? We can check our hearts. Our heart is our own teacher. Does the heart feel spacious? Or is there some way it's closing down, protecting itself through wanting? Our heart will teach us the difference between metta and attached love. So we keep going, learning the flavor, the different flavors of attached love and then the flavor of unconditional love. And we start with the most uncomplicated being we can find to give us um, a feel for the flavor of a more unconditional love. And the reason why the benefactor, easy person category isn't always the person closest to us is because sometimes it's easier to be more unconditional with somebody who isn't as close to us. Sometimes uh, family, friends gets a stickier. This attached love can come up more easily. So we start with the easiest being to familiarize our, our hearts with a more spacious, boundless, unconditional metta. And so if we're being with somebody and we're, we're trying to learn this flavor, if the person gets too complicated, too much attachment arises, then it's um, maybe better to audition somebody else, somebody less complicated. And then eventually, yes, we bring in more and more complicated categories, starting with loved ones and then neutral person, difficult person who's difficult for us. One time I was doing metta, and um, the person I chose as my benefactor was um, a dear friend. But it turned out that she was suffering from depression at the time, and it, it was, it, it was, I wanted too much for her to be happy, and, and it was hard for me to have uh, an unconditional feeling. And so I switched to somebody else that was simpler. And then later, yes, later I went back to her. So sometimes people shift categories on us too. They may seem easy and then they get, then they wind up in the difficult category because of some complication that arises. So we start to experience this heart without grasping, without aversion, just the simplicity of kindness, friendliness, and a deep equanimity that can hold it all. We start to feel the nature of our unobstructed, rewilded heart. 
The second challenge, aversion or ill will, is called the far neighbor of metta because we don't usually confuse it with metta. It doesn't even live in the same town. (laughs) So we don't like this person. We don't particularly want them to be happy. We may even wish for them to be harmed. We may feel anger, fear, hatred, all these forms of aversion. At the very least, we may exclude um, this person from our heart and from the field of kindness. And this can even happen with people who are dear to us, as you all know, right? But when we're doing metta, it can happen even to people who are dear to us. We, we're doing metta, and then we remember, oh yeah, I remember the time you did that. And uh, some resentment arises in the heart. We know that's not metta. We're not confused. That's aversion. Metta practice, as we've said a number of times, is meant to bring up these obstructions, the obstruction of attached love and the obstruction of aversion. And in fact, it can be a sign that the practice is working, not a sign that it's a failure. We're getting realistic about our hearts. And we learn to hold these obstructions um, with spaciousness. It's not some kind of personal problem that aversion arises. It's the nature of things. So we learn to uh, kind of hold this, the not-self, the impersonal nature, while we're also taking responsibility for our heart. Again, it's kind of paradoxical. This is our heart, right? And here it is, and it's showing us its complications. On the other hand, those complications are not some kind of indictment of who we are. They're just arising mind states due to causes and conditions. We don't have to take them personally. So sometimes when we're doing metta, we see, um, we see the pettiness of our own hearts. We all have it. Zen teacher Charlotte Joko Beck, one of my favorites, she said, practice is about learning to be kind, but we will never be kind until we truly experience our unkindness. So we're, we're called for some emotional honesty here. That's how we grow, is through this honesty with ourselves and our own experience. So metta isn't something that we try to kind of slap on top of what's really happening, but rather it includes all of the complexity of our heart. The Vasudhi Maga, the path of purification, calls metta a solvent that melts our psychic pollutants of anger, resentment, and ill will. The way I say it is that metta makes our hearts softer, more pliable. Metta is amazing because it both strengthens our heart and mind. 
it also softens at the same time. A gentle strength. I keep thinking of the moon, a strength like the moon, that gentle light. Hearts that are strong in metta are protected and resilient. Kind of related to the benefits that Devin mentioned the other night. So we usually protect our hearts with grasping and aversion. With metta practice, we learn a healthy, you could say, protection for our hearts. Metta and equanimity. And as we learn these healthier protections, we find that we need the unskillful protections of grasping and aversion less and less. We feel strong, we feel resilient, we feel protected. In fact, in Burma, metta is called a guardian practice, a protection practice. There are four guardian practices, and metta is one of them. So again, when this hindrance arises, we notice that it's there. We can label it. If possible, we put aversion aside and go on with the phrases, the image, the phrases, the intention. If that doesn't work, then we go to somebody easier. We keep going towards what's easy. And sometimes, though, we just can't find anybody easy enough. We've kind of exploded into aversion. Aversion overwhelms us. Then we can go to the Vipassana practice. We can give some time and space to this um, arising heart state, mind state. We can feel it in the body, grounding in the body, name it, ground in the body. Um, See if we can make space for it to be allowing, keeping grounded, not going off in dark. When we go off into the stories, coming back to just creating a a tender space that can hold that energy as it works itself out. Sometimes uh, during this practice, we come up against what my teacher calls karmic knots. And what um, Zokni Rinpoche in a recent uh, Shambhala Lions Roar article called Beautiful Monsters... And um, these are these old, old patterns, usually learned quite young, tangles. I call them core tangles. There's tangles of thought, emotion, beliefs, contractions in the body. And we learn how to hold these when they come up. So perhaps with... with, um, or in my case, for example, with metta, one of them that came up was, there's not going to be enough for me. It was a karmic knot, something that I, a pattern I developed in my child, a belief, and then a kind of 
feeling of scarcity that came out of that belief, and and then that got trans- that got imposed upon my ideas about love. Can we make space to care for these tender places when they come up? They tend to come up when we practice. And again, it's not a mistake. It's part of the of the healing of practice that we learn. We learn not to be so hijacked and dominated by these energies, but rather to take care with them and then expand the possibilities. Perhaps there is enough love for me. Perhaps there's enough love to even share with others. As we're able to hold these energies, that we the mind... Um, heart has a a place for maybe a fresh response, a willingness to try something new. always have more stuff than I can get to. (laughs) A poem called Love's Maturity by, I'm going to say her name wrong, but I'm going to try, Hadowich of Antwerp. Uh, I'm Christian. I believe she was an anchorite, one of the very secluded, uh, many many centuries ago. In the beginning, love satisfies us. When love first spoke to me of love, how I laughed at her in return. But then she made me like the hazel trees, which blossom early in the season of darkness and bear fruit slowly. We have patience with our heart as it's working out its dilemmas. Moving on, the next two challenges are uh, sleepiness and restlessness, a related pair. And when we look at these two challenges, um, we get a lot into the, the technicalities of balancing energy in our practice. So the first one, sloth and torpor, low energy, maybe physically nodding off, maybe foggy mind, maybe can't even remember what the phrase was, can't find it. <laughs> um, I, was, I was a pro at sleepiness in my early practice, definitely one of my favorite hindrances. It rarely happens anymore, but it was definitely a favorite. And um, one time I was on retreat with Sayada Upandita, and definitely by the evening, the evening was my worst time, and he would give the Dharma talks in the evening, and um, I couldn't stay awake. It's half in Burmese to start with, and um, the Burmese talks don't tend to have a lot of stories in them, or um, they tend to be pretty straightforward. So I would fall asleep in every talk, which wasn't unusual for me. One time he gave a talk about yogis who fell asleep during Dharma talks. How they lacked um, uh, Dharma energy. I fell asleep during that talk. 
<laughs> That's how bad it was. <laughs> so if you're experiencing sleepiness, you're in good company. <laughs> and so what are some of the remedies for sleepiness? I'm going to give a number of antidotes. And so we do actually um, do try to work with this energy and see if we can balance our energy. But don't try to remember them all. See if one of them sticks out. Uh, so we have three parts, right? We talked about that. We have the image, we have the phrases, and we have the meaning. So you can try moving through those three parts and seeing if you can give a little more energy to one part. Like maybe you actually say the phrases louder in your mind to bring in more energy. Or you might make the phrases um, longer. Longer phrases tend to energize. So may you be happy and peaceful. May you be happy and peaceful in heart and mind. A little bit longer. Um, Yeah, when we give the mind a little bit more to do, sometimes that brings more energy. So maybe we focus on the image and see the eyes of the person. See if that energizes us. Or maybe we touch our heart and see what's going on in our heart. So we can move around and see uh, where we might find a little more energy or add a little more energy. Um, Bringing in a new person tends to energize for many of us. Um, Simplicity uh, brings more concentration and change brings more energy. So we're trying to balance both. We don't want to bring in a new person every few minutes because... um, will we'll tend towards um, more restlessness and more scatteredness. But sometimes bringing in a new person will. Or switching to self if you were doing the easy person, or switching to the easy person if you are doing self. Or, and we'll allow you to have a backup easy person if, if that brings in more energy. I'm sure you, some of you already do have that. So, and then there's all the usual um, recommendations for sleepiness. Walk faster, walk outside. Take a deep breath and hold it as long as you can and then slowly breathe out. Do that several times. Reflect on why you're here, why you're practicing. Eat less. Ajahn Chah apparently uh, recommends sitting on the edge of a well. We don't have one of those around here. (laughs) Apparently it works pretty well. (laughs) No pun intended. (laughs) Um, You know, we can remember inspiring people, people who are full of metta that inspire us and see if we can borrow some energy from that, like the happy monk. Deepama, Deepama is a was known to be um, a Burmese, um, no, an Indian woman who studied in Burma, um, who was known to be an amazing practitioner. And one time Joseph asked her what was in her mind. She said, concentration, peace, and metta. He said, that's all? And she said, yes. That's inspiring. (laughs) And then graceful surrender. Sometimes we're just tired. We, we have our own energy peaks and um, lows, and uh, 
we, we just acknowledge that and, and respect it, do our best, just keep going the best we can, knowing that the energy will change at some point. It's not personal. It's natural. Contrary to, to societal expectations that 24-7 we should have energy. It's just not true. And if we really can't keep going with the metta, we can, of course, uh, switch to the vipassana, just rest with the breath or our anchor and wait. Restlessness, too much energy, jumpy. Um, Yeah, physical body, jumpy, get me out of here energy sometimes. Anxiety, worry, churning. So with restlessness, we can simplify the phrases. Maybe we've been using long phrases and we might simplify, just may you be happy. Sometimes in the middle of the night, if I can't sleep, I'll do that, a very simple one-sentence metta. Because the, the, the simplicity calms. Walk faster, walk outside, surround the restlessness with metta. Sometimes if there's a lot of restlessness, there's an emotion going on that's, that we're not acknowledging, so we might check to see what's happening with the heart. Stand up. Maybe you're in the hall, very restless. Stand up and feel the feet, feel the earth. Allow the attention to drop down into the feet and the earth that sometimes stabilizes restlessness. And then the last uh, hindrance, doubt, the last challenge. Doubt, confusion, doubting maybe the practice or the teacher, our ability, over-speculation. With metta, we may doubt our ability to love. I can't do this. Everybody else can look at all of them but not my heart, Mm-mm. doubt. Or not believing we deserve love, doing metta for ourselves and feeling like, oh, not me, I don't deserve this. That we're somehow flawed and not okay enough to be worthy of love. So in the same way, we, um, we recognize doubt. If we don't recognize it, it can be paralyzing. But we can name it. We can say, oh, this is doubt. Mara, I see you. The stories from the sutras when Mara is trying to confuse yogis. And when they say, Mara, I see you. That's the transformative moment in the sutras. Mara goes, oh, goes, traditionally, the, the, a lot of them, he goes, sits in the dirt and plays with the dirt with a stick, de- dejected, because he wasn't able to trick the yogi that time. So you can say, Mara, I see you, and not let 
him trick you into believing the doubt stories. You can notice a relationship of energy to doubt. Doubt often arises when our energy is low. That's all that's happening. Our energy's low, things aren't going the way we think they should, and doubt arises. It's really good to know when our periods of low energy are so that we can be on the lookout for doubt. I, for example, never believe my mind after 8 p.m. <laughs> if my mind's coming up with worry about something or whatever, I'm just like, nope, tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. we can think about this because that's when I have energy. Except during Dharma talks, I get energized. (laughs) I can make it through. (laughs) But in general, evenings don't work for me. So I know that it's easy to have doubt and worry at that time. And it helps to know that. Just to know that my mind's not going to be at its best at that time of day. We can also make a time-limited commitment and commit to doubt that we will Consider its concerns and worries at that time. So you can say to doubt, okay, we're going to do this retreat. I signed up. We're going to go through the retreat. But I promise at the end of the retreat, I will be happy to think about any question you want to bring up. It can help. Sometimes the mind will be, okay, we're going to deal with those questions. (laughs) I'm willing to put it aside for the moment. So here we are planting seeds, each phrase, each intention, seeds that blossom when, when the conditions are just right. But each seed is such wholesome karma. We can appreciate every seed that we plant, even if it doesn't sprout right now. We still planted it. And the deepening of metta is realizing the challenge of living with an open heart in the kind of universe that we've taken birth in. A universe that's not under our control, that changes continually, that includes many kinds of joy and many kinds of sorrow. So this is a huge existential question that arises in our practice What do we do with this world of change, impermanence, joy, and sorrow? How do we keep an open heart in this kind of world? I read somebody recommended that you start practicing love with a rock. He was instructed, this person was instructed to carry it around, practice loving it. People are so complicated and difficult. Start with a rock. James Baldwin, famous uh, American philosopher, said, Love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within.
That's the existential dilemma. The masks that we fear we cannot live without. The shielding of our heart that we're afraid we cannot live without. And yet that same shielding that we know we cannot live within. And so we give the heart time. We listen to the heart as it negotiates negotiates this existential dilemma. We listen instead of bossing around. (laughs) And the heart works it out. The deepest desire of the heart is this openness, openness and boundlessness of metta, of freedom, uncontracted, unobstructed, rewilded heart. Let's sit for a minute, and then we'll chant the Metta Sutra. Our own heart is our first teacher. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.